This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. This is The Edge of Analytics, a Business Radio special presentation from the floor of the 2019 MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Here's your host, Kate Massey. Hello and welcome to a Business Radio special program from the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and made the trip up to Boston a couple of weeks ago to attend something like the 12th or 13th edition of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. While there, we had a chance to sit down with a few of our favorite writers and analysts and thinkers in the world of sports analytics. We talked with David Epstein, writer and investigative reporter, Maria Konnikova, another writer and author of a new book, and Milgram, former attorney general of New Jersey, and she uses crime analytics to advance criminal justice. Ted Knutson, founder and owner of StatsBomb, leading frontier in soccer analytics. Marianne Turk, COO of the NFL. And John DeFiore. John is head of the health efforts in the NBA. In the first half hour of the show, we're going to talk to Maria Konnikova. As many of you know, Maria is an author and a journalist and recently a poker stars team pro. She went to write a book about poker and wandered into the world of poker, turned out to be able to play a little poker. Fascinating conversation with Maria. Before we talked to Maria, we talked with David Epstein. David is best known for a book he wrote a few years ago called The Sports Gene, led to a big conversation about what is behind exceptional sports performance. He is a longtime writer with ProPublica and Sports Illustrated, and importantly, has a book coming out called Range, Why Generalist Triumph in a Specialized World. We had an interesting conversation about his argument that despite the narrative these days that the world is ever more specialized and therefore we have to focus and become more and more narrow, that it's actually those who are generalist who do better in the long run. That's our first half hour. Enjoy. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and today I'm on the floor of the conference now talking to David Epstein. David is a science writer and an investigative reporter. You probably know him from his best-selling book, The Sports Gene. Before that, he was a writer, including at Sports Illustrated. Before that, an all-East Division eight hundred meter, Division one, 800-meter <laughs> runner. 800 meters, man. Well, David, good morning and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. I've always thought of 800 meters as kind of like the toughest race because it's, it's that distance. You can't really pace yourself much, but it's a long time to go all out. Yeah, are you are you still running, and have you recovered from the scars of, of competitive eight hundreds? I'm I'm still running, and it is that it's sort of like this riding the red line, right? So you either have a great race or you totally blow up. There's mm-hmm. like very high variance in your own personal outcomes. Okay, um, but you end up in that because like you wanted to be a sprinter and you didn't quite make it as a sprinter, and you're dumb enough to like move up a little <laughs> bit in distance. So in a way, when you get to college, like great, it's weeded out all the real sprinters. So it's sort okay. of it's it's the survival. Like nobody ends up you know in the eight hundred totally. By choice, right. but, but it's it's really useful, I think, because yeah, you know, I just finished a second book, and I think of it the same way. It's like total torture in the middle, but at wow. the end, if you think you gave a good effort or did something kind of unique, you're like, maybe that wasn't so bad. <laughs> maybe I'll do it again sometime. <laughs> There's just enough failure of your memory to, to <laughs> exactly. uh, rationalize it <laughs> away. 
So you're going to do a session with Malcolm Gladwell here at the conference, yep. and uh, you know, I, sometimes I think all of Malcolm's friends are runners. Basically, you guys, he's, he's, you guys have that in common. He's like the biggest track nerd I have ever met. We, beca- <laughs> we became running buddies after being on a panel at this conference in 2014. Is Had never right? met before. Okay. Yeah, and like, so I'd show up to do his workout with him, and he'd like, "Did you see the results from Belgium and stuff?" And I'm like, "Wow, man!" Because I'm because I'm also a track nerd, but he's. Yeah, I mean he's a he's he's a borderline world class runner for his age group. Also, that's that's fantastic. What will y'all be talking about? So you've had these debates in the past. Is this going to be a continuation of the debate? I, I think partly it's going to be a continuation of the debate, but I don't think we're going to be as kind of pitted against each other this time. We sort of want to talk about uh, de- modern development of elite athletes, like sort of their their developmental path starting from when they're younger. And one of the things I've particularly been interested in is the timing of specialization for okay. young athletes. Okay. So. Um, in our first sort of discussion in, in 2014, I, I sort of knew that he was going to argue about the advantage of a head start. And so, well, so let's just be, be clear sure, about this. Sure. He, he is well known for talking about some, some work that's come out of psychology on right. the virtue of experience and this right. 10,000 hour. He kind of popularized this notion of 10,000 yeah. hour. You know, people misread it in some sense, but he, yep. he contributed that to, to a degree. And you come along with your book that says, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe nature has a little bit more to do with, with this. Yeah. So that you guys kind of naturally had a conversation around that. Yeah. And you're saying from that grew this other interest and maybe the second book to some extent flows from that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so when I, I knew he was going to talk about, so sort of one of the, the corollaries of the 10,000-hour rule was start as early as possible in narrow technical training because that's like the only thing that matters, the development of expertise. And so I went through all of the sports literature I could find, looking at all of the longitudinal studies, right? Because when you look at the cross-sectional studies, in fact, the athletes who are elite practice more than the athletes who are at lower levels. Right. But when you look at the longitudinal studies, the athletes who are in the future going to become elite are doing less technical practice in the okay. domain in which they eventually go on to become elite. Let's be clear. This, this distinction may be lost on some folks, but cross-sectional, you can't say anything about causality in the cross-section. This right. is just correlation. It doesn't mean it's not useful, yeah, but, but that's in, right. But it can be misleading. That's right. And so you're saying the real test would be something a lot more. The real test would be a, you know, a randomized controlled right. experiment. But right. in the absence of that, you need something longitudinal to understand the selection issues. Yeah, and, and some of the studies that have been done are pretty neat. So I, I thought that this would be so, – so you see this very distinct pattern of athletes who are going to go on to become elite. Um, what I called the Roger pattern. So when we argued about it, I said there's the Tiger Woods that everybody writes about and extrapolates to everything in the world. But I made the argument that golf is actually a uniquely poor uh, model of a skill model of what the things that most people want to learn. Basically, it's non-dynamic. Basically, you're trying to repeat certain behaviors with as little deviation as possible, right? right? Like, if, if sports weren't just entertainment, it would be like the most automatable of skills imaginable. And mo- okay. most sports aren't like that. So I think it's not good that we've extrapolated okay. from golf to these other sports. So in the other sports, what you see is this, the athletes who go on to become elite get this kind of diverse exposure to a wide array of sports, sort of like being like bilingual in sports. And then only later do they, they focus in, they learn about their own abilities and they gain this variety of skills. And then they start picking up any newer skills faster than their peers and they sort of pass over them. So t- let's talk about the causality of that, yeah, though. And yeah, we just we just yeah. had this conversation this past week. We had um, a cardiac, no, I'm sorry, an orthopedic surgeon who does sports medicine down in Birmingham with Alabama athletes. And he talked about, you know, these kids these days, mm-hmm. they're over-specialized and that, that repetitive, um, that rep- all those rep- repetitions can be strained on the body. And yeah. and we came away from the conversation. We get it. We, we, we believe that. But is there... When you say, you know, the guys who turn out to be great play multiple sports, to what extent is it, is it just revealing that they can play? The, yeah. be- the best athletes can play multiple sports. And if that's true, can we really tell 
our kids these days. You know, you need to play four sports yeah, yeah. in order to pick this thing up. That, that was one of my main questions. And in terms of the orthopedic surgeon, the injury stuff I kind of think is interesting but sort of ignore because I'm interested in skill development okay. as opposed to the, okay. the health aspect is different. Got it. Um, but I originally thought it was going to be totally just the better athletes can play more sports and also the longer you delay selection, the more likely you get them into their best sport. Right. But then I started finding some of these studies where athletes would be, say, like soccer players would be matched at age 11 or 12 or 13, tracked over the next couple of years to see what they do, matched for assessed skill level and see who improves more. And it would be the kids that were doing multiple sports. Where are they running these studies? How can you do that? Yeah. Yeah, not in the United States, unfortunately. Wow. I mean, we don't so have centralized is... sports institutes like, you know, like the UK and Australia and the Netherlands and these places like that. So it doesn't really happen here. So is it the case that some? I mean, you just named benign governments. We could name some that are less benign. So if you're yeah. a big country and you have control over these things, you could run some experiments of sorts to figure totally. out how to identify the best athletes at the earliest age possible. Yeah, totally. So you're saying some folks have done some version of this. Some version of that, right? And again, you're, you're relying on people to be. Somebody is still assessing their skill at a certain age, right? And that's not perfect. But I think it's, I think that suggested to me that there might be more than just selection going on here okay. or the best athletes playing, okay. um, uh, you know, being able to play a whole bunch okay. of different sports. Although I think that is a factor. And I think that, that match quality, which the, the, the earlier you push selection, the more likely you put the wrong people in the wrong place or right. you pick based just on biological maturation or whatever it right. is. But I think there's this burgeoning body of evidence that there's actually a skill development benefit okay. to, to this breadth. In, in anticipatory sports, golf, different, different model. Anticipatory, uh, different so define anticipatory. Anticipatory sports are sports where uh, things are happening faster than human reaction speed is, is sufficient for. So you have to be judging what's coming based on body movements or ball movements, positions of players. So the reason that elite athletes look like they have superhuman reflexes is because they're actually seeing what's coming before it happens based on the arrangement of players and, and balls and things like that. So you're using this as an example of where generalization is especially helpful. I might have expected exactly the opposite. The more you need to lean on anticipation, the more you need pattern recognition. And everything we know about expertise is actually most of expertise is just pattern recognition. In, in things like chess and stuff like that, right? But those are, again, those are the, that's why one of the reasons why chess is like so easy to automate, relatively speaking, because it's like pattern recognition over and over, very rule-bound and things like that. Uh, I think sports is somewhat more dynamic because the other person is in real time trying to confuse mm-hmm. that pattern recognition, yeah. basically. Yep. And so that kind of pattern recognition, that chunking, basically, right? It, that's what we use for language, too. And, I, right. and while I think a lot of the research on the benefits of, of growing up bilingual, for example, is, is pretty soft. There's some that shows that if you grow up bilingual, you're, you're delayed in some of your language development a little. But if you're given like a fake system of grammar, you're then better able to pick it up than someone who grows up monolingual. And I think that's a reasonable analogy to the kind of chunking that's used in sports to recognize wow. what's coming. Okay. So you, you, the book that's coming out, when, is this, when should we expect this? May 28th. May 28th. It's called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. How general an argument do you make? So we're talking about the development of elite athletes, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I assume this book is aimed beyond that. The introduction is sports. And then after that, it's almost completely outside of sports. So okay. music, art, uh, technology, medical research, scientific invention. Um, yeah, it goes... The idea is to use sports as the analogy for jumping okay, off Okay, so point. if we took this to, say, our graduate students, mm-hmm. what, what could we... When we read your book in May... Yeah. What what will we take out of that to say, okay, you, you know, future what pick your grad school. What advice might what advice might generalize to them about how they think about their professional development? Yeah, so f- for an example, I think there should be much so I, I was a grad student uh, in geological sciences, right? And I was 
learning the, I was living in the Arctic in a tent and learning the intricacies of Arctic plant physiology. And I can say now, having been a science writer, I realize how little I understood about scientific thinking, right? So I didn't learn about statistical malpractice that I was committing until I became a science writer. <laughs> okay. So I have papers published in journals now that I realize only as a journalist wow. that I was doing things wrong statistically okay. because I didn't learn scientific thinking. Okay. So I think there's a first great argument for them to zoom out, not really learn the specifics of their field, and learn how scientific thinking is supposed to work, okay. and then learn the approaches to problem solving um, across domains. So, so in one of the chapters in the book, I talk about using analogies from different domains and how that can be this incredible help for novel right. problem solving. Okay. And you see like what, a, a woman, Deidre Gentner, who's probably like the world's expert in analogical thinking, yeah. did these studies where she looks at like how able are students to kind of understand the underlying, the deep structure of a problem that's outside of their domain. Yep. And the students who did the best in these studies she did were the ones in this thing called the Integrated Science Program okay. uh, at Northwestern, where they sample they're basically it's like as if you have a minor in like every different science basically and they did really well at recognizing the deep structure of problems and using analogies from different domains to solve them and then i went around you know at the university and asked what do people think about the integrated science program and the professors say gets the kids behind on getting to their major so you know you really don't want them to get behind and now we're talking just like the parents of 12 year olds who want their kids to play summer baseball exactly it's the the cult of the head start you know and Mm -hmm. i think it's and i think usually those those youth sports programs are teaching closed skills primarily. So they, they teach the kind of skills where you can give this temporary advantage. I mean, it's the same issue with sort of Head Start academic programs where you see this fade-out, this ubiquitous fade-out effect. Okay. So it was just a meta-analysis of like 60 different Head Start programs, and they found this ubiquitous Remind fade-out. us what the Head Start program so it, is. So it's like early intervention um, for childhood academics, like okay. very early. And it, and it gives this great academic boost early on, and it completely fades out. Completely wow. fades out later on. Okay. And the problem is that the easiest way to give a head start is to teach what's called closed skills, which are, you know, sort of procedures, basically, okay. not to give someone sort of the broader knowledge right. that helps them approach problem solving. Right. So the fade out isn't that those kids are getting worse. It's that everyone's catching up. It's like teaching a kid to walk earlier, which, you know, may be kind of cool, but <laughs> right. there's for like a month, but everyone will catch up yeah, and there's no yeah, evidence yeah. that it matters for anything in the future. All right. Well, listen, David, thanks for taking time out of your conference today and uh, wish you the best with your panel with Malcolm Gladwell and with the book coming out this spring. Thank you very much. Thanks you for bet. having me. You bet. David Epstein, science writer and investigative reporter. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and I'm on the floor of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference now talking with Maria Konnikova. Maria is an author, journalist, and Poker Stars team pro. <laughs> She's also a great follow on Twitter, by the way. She has many articles out for The New Yorker, and we're delighted to welcome you. Thanks for being here, Maria. Thanks so much for having me. So what brings you to Sloan, and have you been here before? I've never been here before, and I am here to talk about poker and how kind of analyzing the game of poker fits into analyzing sports in general. Okay. So it's not obvious that you found yourself in poker. It feels like, so you're, you're, how have you lived all the lives you're living? So you, <laughs> one minute you're doing a psychology PhD at Columbia, yep. and then you're writing New Yorker articles, great ones, and then you're competing in poker tournaments? How does this, how does this happen? Um, no sleep. <laughs> is that right? Well, sadly... no, no, I actually, I actually think that sleep is incredibly important. And okay. I wrote a big series for The New Yorker a number of right. years ago about sleep. Okay. So that, so actually the, the no sleep was tongue in cheek. Um, I often have not gotten enough sleep, but I think that that's, I would like every listener to get at least eight hours, but most people need more than eight. It really? is actually, yeah. Really? 
Yeah, and you, your cognitive function significantly dis- declines after that, even after one night. This would be a good uh, so, poker study because you could, you could measure people's and maybe even manipulate yeah. people's sleep and then see their performance. For sure, for sure. I think it's really important with athletes in general. But um, I came to poker for um, a book. So I um, had studied decision-making as a grad student, that was what my PhD was in, mm-hmm. um, and then had never wanted to be in academia. I always wanted to be a writer. Um, and so, so, how do you? Why do you go through a PhD program? I mean, that's a long. That's a lot to is, do. If you, you know, know, you never want to be an academic. I am fascinated by the human mind, by why we do the things we do, what makes us who we are, mm-hmm. and I wanted to delve into it on a more deep level. Okay. And the way that you're intellectually stimulated constantly. Um, in a PhD program is not something that you experience in other environments. Okay. And I had an advisor, Walter Michelle, who um, was kind of this titan in the field. Who yeah. I was his last PhD student. Wow. He knew I didn't want to go into academia. This is what I was going to ask. Did your advisors know yes, this? He knew this um, wow, from the okay. beginning and he supported it. Um, and he was someone who was incredibly well-rounded himself. Mm-hmm. And it was very, we had the funniest conversation. He said, you know, if I were you right now, I wouldn't want to go into academia either. Wow. I told him I wanted to write and he said, this is amazing. We need more people That's who right. understand psychology well, edu- deeply yes, right. and communicate it. And academia is not for everybody. It shouldn't yes, be for exactly. everybody. There are exactly. huge trade-offs. Um, and so then I started writing full-time. I wrote my first book actually in grad school. I took, okay. um, I took a leave of absence to write Mastermind, which okay. was my first book. Okay. Um, and got very lucky in that it did well. So okay. then I was able to write full-time. I see. Okay. Um, I did finish my PhD. Thank you, Mom. <laughs> Congrats. That's, that's a big deal. Um, it's a lot easier to start yes, than to finish. Yes. So I did finish. I went back. I finished. And then I started writing full time. Okay. And for my second book was about con artists. Yep. And then for my third book, I wanted to explore the role of luck in our lives. Okay. What is the balance of skill and chance? Can we learn to tell the difference? Um, can we this learn is everything? This yeah. is like everything. This is so general and so important. <laughs> exactly. But that's exactly the, the issue. It's so general. Mm-hmm. So if I were to come to my editor and say, I want to write a book about skill versus chance, my editor would say, <laughs> what's next? The book of life, right? That's, yeah, right. It's not something that you can really do because it's such a huge question and it's such an intricate part of life. And so I needed a way in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I do, my process before any big research project, before any book, before any big article is reading. I read as much as I can possibly get my hands on to okay. stimulate my brain, to try to figure out you know, where the connections are, what hasn't been covered, just to get the creative juices flowing. Yep. Um, and someone recommended when they, int- when they heard that I was interested in skill versus chance and in kind of learning how to dissociate the two, they said, have you studied game theory? And I yep. hadn't done much game theory, mm-hmm. but then I went to John von Neumann's theory of games. Okay. Kind of the Good place to go. Yep. All right. Foundational book and learned from that book that game theory came from poker, okay. that von Neumann was a huge poker player okay. and had realized that poker was the perfect mm-hmm. strategic decision-making environment for him to model complex human decision-making. He, okay. he was also a chess player. He also 
played bridge. He, he played a lot of games. Okay. But poker, to him, was the only one that actually mirrored life decision-making accurately because it was a game okay. of incomplete information. Right. Um, it was a game where you played people as well. Bluffing mm. was involved. All of these intricate elements. Can I just say one yeah. thing, though? Like, So I, I, I heard Jeff Moss say this yeah. on a podcast sometime in the past year. He said, because Jeff has very much the same orientation you do, but there is this wrinkle where, well, you know, there are only 52 cards and we know the exact probability. We don't know what the other person has, but there's a distribution of probability over what they have. And so things are more precise. Absolutely. So that's why it's a good decision-making tool Mm -hmm. because... If you if you had something that mirrored life exactly, it would be unwieldy right. because life is unwieldy. Right, right, right. So you need something to circumscribe. You need a circumscribed environment right. in order to be able to build this. Good. So so that's um, when I read that, I thought, oh, poker sounds interesting. Okay, <laughs> Maybe. And, but you're coming from scratch. I, I mean, look, like, I haven't scratch. played poker. I haven't no. read about poker. I haven't so, watched. You know, poker. you say, you know, it's it's funny that you say with such confidence. Obviously, there are 52 cards in the deck. The first time I met with the person who would become my coach, Eric Seidel, um, I didn't know how many cards were in the deck. <laughs> I thought there were. I thought there were 54. And to this day, he has not let me live that down. I wonder if he, I wonder if he's like, okay, maybe I don't want this student. Like, maybe I don't want to sign up for this. No, the- he he was he was really interested in the project, but he you know he still jokes that the day that the jokers come right. up, I'm going to reset. Win, I'm going to win everything. <laughs> so, Maria, how does someone who doesn't know how many cards there are in the deck get Eric Seidel, such an accomplished player? Yeah. How do you get him as a coach? He never took students. He doesn't. That's not something he does. Um, I was not coming to it saying I want to become a poker champion. I was coming to it saying I'm a writer for The New Yorker. Um, I'm a psychologist. This is the background. My background is in the psychology of decision making. Um, I want to use this to explore life as a metaphor for life. I want to use this kind of as a through line, as a story for kind of these broader themes. And he thought... This is really interesting. Okay. And I think he took me on for a few reasons. First, he loves poker and he wants to bring it to a wider audience. Okay. Good. And I'm a wider audience because yeah. I'm not from the poker world. Okay. Secondly, and you have a megaphone to an even wider right. audience. And then he also thought it's a really interesting proof of concept because if he can teach someone from a psychology background, not a stats background, not right. a math, math. background, mm-hmm. which is kind of where the modern zeitgeist is, sure. that it's mm-hmm. all in the math. For sure. If he can teach someone like me, and if his approach ends up making me successful, then that's a huge proof of concept okay. about how important those things are in the game of poker. Okay. So does the fact that you so this is interesting. It's not just that you want to understand poker well enough to use it as a metaphor for skill and chance in life. It's, I'm going to guess it's the case that you want to use your learning poker as the ability to learn the skills that are important Absolutely. for discerning skill and chance in life. Yes, that's very well put. Okay. Um, and the book was always going to be about my journey. And I didn't know if I was going to be good or not. I didn't know what was going to happen. And the book would have worked no matter what. Right? <laughs> it's going to work better because of the, <laughs> it's going to work because better, of the yes. way it went. <laughs> this is true. This is true. It's definitely going to work better this way. But it would have worked no matter what because that was never the point. The point was the journey. Yeah, it was right. the learning process. It was learning to distill all of these elements because poker is a game. Mm-hmm. And because you can, so what you learn from psychology is about all these decision biases, about how bad we are at thinking probabilistically, how bad the human mind is in dealing with risk and evaluating risk. Mm-hmm. Um, what I studied in grad school was the illusion of control. So mm-hmm. my my um, 
my mentor, my advisor, studied self-control. He mm-hmm. did the famous marshmallow studies. Mm-hmm. And so I actually took that to the extreme and said, well, what about people who think they're in control when they're not? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was what I ended up studying. And you know, you see that incredibly intelligent people actually end up being much more prone to the illusion of control in stochastic environments because they're so used to being in control normally and in understanding that they're sometimes the last to figure out that they're in an environment where they matter less, where their decisions actually matter less. To what what extent is that going to be one of the main themes that comes out of your book that people... I mean, this is my claim is generally that people underestimate the role of chance. Yes. And this is a real problem. I think that's I think it's a huge problem. And I think that's one of the things I hope to accomplish with my book is to make people understand that the role of chance is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and in poker, you really understand there's a, it's a skill game, ultimately. So I get, you know, when people so say. How do you, but what do you mean by that? So, like, how do you define that? So it's a game. Um, it's a game where. I can win with the worst hand and I can lose with the best hand. Right. And if it were a gambling game, so when people say, like, for instance, blackjack, that's gambling because I actually, in order to win, sure, I can count cards, I can understand the probabilities, I can have a strategy, but ultimately it's totally reliant on chance and I have to have the best hand to win. Interesting and true, but we can say just the opposite, which is going to introduce the real chance does it not like i can i can lose with the best hand and i can win with the worst there's a huge role of chance in poker as well so it's kind of a question of you know people have there have been like court cases about this how do we what does the percent need to be before we define it as a game of chance i mean the the percent of skill in poker is much greater than 50 percent. it's greater than 70 percent. i would say it's greater than 80 percent. if i were to play against the best player in the world i could win because chance is chance plays a role but if we were to play 100 games, he would take all of my money. <laughs> okay. So this actually raises a question I'd love to hear your take on. Um, the, my understanding is that the top players in the world, they enter these tournaments. And even though it's a game of skill, and especially now that they're playing other guys with skill, the more everyone's equally matched, the more it becomes a, a function of chance. They go in knowing, mm, you know, I can play my best and still lose. And so yeah. I need to hedge that. And then they start farming out part of their winnings and they buy into other people's winnings. Absolutely. And, and this is remarkable because you think of these poker players as being like these risk takers and these bold players. But it's precisely because they understand the yes. world that they diversify. Yes, you need to manage your risk. Mm-hmm. And the better you are, the better you have to be at risk management. Mm-hmm. I don't know a single really good player who's at the top of their game who has 100% of their own action. Remarkable. It just, it doesn't happen because you need, you need to understand variance Mm -hmm. and it's such hubris in anything in life to think that variance doesn't play a role. I mean, it's variance is important in every single profession, Mm -hmm. in every single thing that Mm -hmm. we do. Mm -hmm. And people, people hate to acknowledge that I think as a Mm -hmm. matter of course, Mm -hmm. because um, it means that there's something other than you. It's incredible. It means that there are things that you just you have to let go of. But but only by acknowledging that can you actually take yes. the steps to adapt to it. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, you'll get yourself in trouble precisely because you don't acknowledge exactly. it. Exactly, exactly. This sounds like a great book. Very much looking forward to um, when it comes out. Wish you, you the best with it. Maria, thanks for stepping away from the conference for a little bit and spending some time with us. We wish you the best with the panel Thank and you. with the conference. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You bet. Maria Konnikova, author, journalist, poker player, and um, the author of an upcoming book on skill and chance, using poker to kind of make that a little bit more concrete. 
Thank you. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.